You're listening to The Globalist, first broadcast on the 27th of February 2023 on Monocle 24. The Globalist, in association with UBS. Live from London, this is The Globalist with me, Emma Nelson. A very warm welcome to today's programme. Coming up, we have the latest on the elections in Nigeria. The election now is between the big names who have destroyed this country and people who are looking for an alternative. With the results not expected today, we'll assess how well and how reliably the voting went and what a long wait means for the country. Also coming up, Vladimir Putin accuses the West of trying to dismantle Russia and how does the Vatican keep impartial in the face of Moscow's invasion of Ukraine? He can try to keep certain dimensions of this terrible war to the fore. So he, for example, he can still pronounce the word peace, dialogue, and diplomacy. Plus the papers, the arts news, and we'll be live at Milan Fashion Week. That's all ahead on today's Globalist, live from London. First, a quick look at what else is happening in today's news. The US has warned China against providing arms to support Russia's invasion of Ukraine. The UK Prime Minister Rishi Sunak will meet with the European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen later to finalise a Brexit deal for Northern Ireland. And around 60% of so-called animal cafes in Japan are dealing with species restricted by international trade laws. That's according to a new study. Stay tuned to Monocle 24 throughout the day for more on these stories, but First, it won't be until later this week that we probably hear the final results of this weekend's presidential elections in Nigeria. People were reportedly still queuing to vote yesterday while the counting began. Critics say the election descended into chaos, marred by delays, violence and complaints of irregularities at polling stations. Now, more than 24 hours after polls closed, many polling stations have yet to upload their results. Well, to find out more, let's hear from Richard Ashton, who's West Africa correspondent for The Times. He joins me on the line from Lagos. A very good morning to you, Richard. Morning, Emma. How are you? Very well, thank you. Uh, Despite how I sound, let's just crack on with what's happening in Nigeria. Just explain to us a little bit, where are we with the results so far? We are um, not very far down the line, I'm afraid. We had the first uh, official results from the first of Nigeria's 36 states coming yesterday evening. Ekiti is a small southwestern state. Um, They came in just before um, the Electoral Commission suspended the further announcement of results until this morning. Um, To give you an idea of uh, how they went, this election has been shaken up. This campaign has been shaken up by the emergence of Peter Obi, um, an outsider candidate representing the Labour Party, who is on a ticket of um, you know fighting corruption and has come to lead some polls on a wave of, of youthful uh, popular support. But not great news for him uh, from Ekiti. Um, the results show that 65% of votes, almost two-thirds, went to the ruling party candidate, Bola Ahmed Tinubu. And then in second place was the main opposition candidate, Azku Abubakar, um, with Obi languishing in third on just 4% of the votes, with 11,000 
votes he picked up there. But it is very early stages, as I say, and I'm, I'm sure we'll discuss more why why that might be. Well, just explain to us a little bit more about how this how this is playing out. There are two main parties in this, aren't there? We have the president Mohammadu Buhari is leaving, having permitted having having served maximum two terms. So we are having to look at ostensibly fresh characters, but these characters are far from new. They're in their seventies, and they're they're often seen as Nigeria's so called godfathers, aren't they? That's right, particularly Bola Ahmed Tinubu, uh, who is a former governor of Lagos, served for two terms as governor of Lagos, and is considered the godfather of the, 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 the African megacity. Um, he has ruled it in his personal image, if you like, uh, whilst governor and even ever since. He uh, is the man who created the coalition that, that put Buhari in power in 2015, and his slogan roughly translates as, it's my turn to be president. He says he's 70, but it's possible that he may be older. He hasn't been able to produce a birth certificate. He's up against Atiku Abubakar, who is 76, and is in his sixth lunge at the presidency. Uh, a northerner who will who is expected to rack up huge numbers of votes in the predominantly Muslim north, where there are more voters than in the south. Um, so these are very much two tried and tested characters. Um, Obi was, in fact, Afiku Abubakar's uh, vice presidential running mate in the last election in 2019. But just before the announcement of, of the, his party's uh, candidate last year, he, he left the party, took up with the Labour Party and announced his run as Labour Party candidate. Um, so, yes, Nigerians are being offered new leadership, but it's very much, you know, two or even three characters who've been around who are part of the political establishment. Indeed. And if you have the old guard running the, the, for the for the, you know, being the two running contenders for the for the presidency, how much of a difference does the emergence of Peter Obu make? Are we looking perhaps at something which is a more long-term change or is this just one incident in a more traditional pattern? Well, I think we are seeing um, cases around Africa of, of youthful populations um, becoming more involved in politics. In Nigeria, we had a huge nationwide protests against uh, police brutality and, and general authoritarianism in 2020, the NSARS protests as they, they came to be known. And I think a lot of the, the, the momentum, the impetus from those, from those protests has been transposed onto the Obi campaign and has fueled that campaign. Um, privately, people connected to the Obi campaign have told me even if he doesn't win this election, it's part of a movement and, you know, they'll be back. Um, I suspect that, that, that if he doesn't win, then there may be um, a reaction among young Nigerians. Um, but also that, yeah, that, 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 uh, that feeling that, that African Nigerian politics is out of touch with the everyday person. You know, you've got to remember that, that the median age in, in Nigeria is 18. Um, so this is 70-year-olds um, governing 18-year-olds and they're just sick and tired of, of not having their interests heard. 
Richard, tell us a little bit more about the way that the elections have been played out this weekend. We've, you know, one news agency is reporting scenes of chaos. Others are saying that it went quite smoothly. There are reports also that people were queuing overnight to vote on Sunday when the elections happened on Saturday. What's your impression as, uh, of how things have gone? Well, Nigeria, since returning to civil rule in 1999, has always had elections marred by cases of violence, of voter intimidation, particularly vote buying, um, where parties literally hand out cash and return for votes. Those those reports have all come in uh, this weekend. Um, there, there have been cases of sporadic violence. We had uh, jihadists in the northeast firing electoral uh, commission officials um, and cases of armed groups turning up at polling stations and snatching ballot boxes. But but my impression is that those those reports have perhaps been less widespread than in previous elections. What um, is in danger of undermining this election is uh, issues connected to a new digital voting system, uh, which has been rolled out this time. We were told that uh, votes would be uploaded, results would be uploaded, to a publicly available portal um, as soon as they were counted at polling stations on Saturday at the end of voting. But as we speak now, um, just under a third of, of the results from, from polling stations are up on that portal. Um, and and we, we thought that the rolling out of this digital voting system would make the announcement of official results quicker. Um, and yet, this morning we wake up and we have just result of one state. Um, and Nigerians are becoming very anxious. Um, Abu Bakr yesterday, as, as fears of rigging were mounting, accused governors in various states around the country of trying to thwart democracy, trying to thwart the attempts of officials to send results on to Abuja, the capital, um, which has heightened tension. So it, it's a bit of a waiting game at the moment. Um, and it remains to be seen whether this uh, election will be accepted by those who do not come out on top. And if it isn't accepted, what happens next? Because one gets the impression that this will be a very long, drawn-out process, as they usually are, as you've just described. Yes, potentially. I mean, we we could get an official result in the next few days, um, and then it will be it'll be you know. Candidates can go to the courts uh, to to um, to, claim, to appeal the results. That will presumably drag on. But I think, as we saw in Kenya last year, you know, those legal cases can drag on whilst the country, to an extent, moves on. The president is accepted, um, and things go relatively back to normal. Um, what may change that in in Nigeria is simply this this discontent with the way politics has been run for so long. So it will be interesting to see if, if there is, uh, you know, any any mass uh, protest demonstrations. Um, if, if, for example, Tinubu, the ruling party, party candidate, makes it over the line and is accused of using the muscle of his uh, nationwide parties to, to get his way. Finally, Richard, this just doesn't have implications for Nigeria. The, the wider context of such an enormous country with so many people able to vote and also the implications for the outside world. One country 
which rather surprisingly some might say that's been watching it is is Germany. It has a very very strong connection with um, Nigeria because of migration issues. Um, how do you think what's happening in Nigeria could be playing out in the likes of Berlin? Well, yeah, absolutely right. I mean, the world can no longer afford to ignore what, what's going on in Nigeria, I don't think. By 2050, population is predicted to be 400 million, making Nigeria the third most populous country in the world after China and India. Um, you know, one in five Africans already is Nigerian. And Nigeria, when, when times are good, um, is a leader in, in, in Africa. But has been so preoccupied with various security and economic crises in the last years that it failed to provide that leadership and done, done any, do anything more than watch as successive African states have seen coups and various other backslides from democracy. And yes, when it comes to migration, what happens in, in Nigeria is inextricably linked with you know, how many Nigerians arrive in countries like Germany and the UK, where Nigerians are now the third uh, largest foreign national minority, um, turn up to, to, to seek better lives. Most of them, I should say, by legal means, um, some by illegal means. Um, and I think European states could do more to, to engage with how they can take advantage and, and, and make the best of the talent, the huge amount of talent coming from a country like Nigeria, but also work with Nigeria to, to understand what the push and pull factors are and, and how they might best be managed. You know, no one wants to see um, Nigeria uh, collapse and, and go downhill because the consequences would be devastating, um, particularly for its neighbours and for Africa, but, but, but quite clearly for, for countries Richard Ashton, on the line from Lagos, thank you so much for joining us on The Globalist. You're with Monocle 24. Nine fourteen am in Kiev, 7.14 here in London. Now, Vladimir Putin said this weekend that the West wants to liquidate Russia. They have one goal, he said, to disband the former Soviet Union and its fundamental part, the Russian Federation. The West, he said, was an indirect accomplice to the crimes committed by Ukraine. While his comments arguably set the tone for the second year of Moscow's invasion of Ukraine, with a blame squarely set with the likes of NATO and the familiar warning of the existential threat posed to Russia by almost everybody else. Well, I'm joined by the Russia analyst Stephen DL, a regular here on Monocle 24. Good morning, Stephen. Good morning, Emma. Good morning, everyone. So let's just explain to us, what was it exactly that Vladimir Putin said this weekend? Oh, it, it, it was one of those, well, he would say that, wouldn't he? Um, saying that um, that, that uh, Russia is, he's repeating really the words he said in the State of the Nation address um, on, the tw- on the 21st of February, that um, Russia is waging this war with force against NATO and against the West because the West wants to destroy Russia as a nation 
Um, this is it's it's a slight twist in a, in a way it's well he would say that but it, it's a slight twist on what he was saying a year ago when they he started the war against Ukraine it was very much because neo Nazis are in control of Ukraine uh, they're they're killing our Russian brothers who live in Ukraine and we must go and defend our Russian brothers um, the the twist now and it's been the case really for the last couple of months but he really underlined it in these last two speeches is that this is all about the West. Uh, it's a, if you like, it's a, um, it's a hidden war of the West in Ukraine. Um, he doesn't come out and say there are Western forces in Ukraine because even for him that might be too much of a lie. But of course, uh, he's using the fact that the West, NATO, um, has been providing weaponry for Ukraine. Um, and so for him, this is this is now it's not just the fact that we're protecting our Russian brothers. It's the fact that the West wants to strangle Russia. It wants to wipe Russia off the map. Um, and it's doing it via Ukraine in this in this almost hidden way. Um, and that's why Russia has to keep going and will be fighting back using force. That's his excuse. And in this interview, he wasn't afraid to bring out the nuclear option, was he? I think the quote was, uh, our people could suffer. How can we ignore NATO's <coughs> nuclear capabilities in these conditions? This, again, is a theme that's come up um, time and again, really, over the past year. Um, he first mooted this in the first couple of weeks of, of the war. So we're going back nearly a year. Um, and of course, that is the, the big question mark. Um, Russia has the biggest nuclear arsenal in the in the world. Um, he pulled out last week from the the start talks, the the only strategic uh, arms limitation talks that were still taking place between Russia and the United States. Um, and that is seen by some as, as upping the ante. Um, it, it, it's thought by many commentators that um, he realises that pushing the nuclear button against anywhere in the West would mean Russia being obliterated. It would mean much of the West being obliterated too. But um, that that it, it's it's obviously it's the ultimate sanction that, that he can hold against the West. Um, he does keep raising it because he knows that it gets the people in the West worried and it, get, and it means that, for example, the United States will hold off sending any troops into, into Ukraine um, because uh, that might well be the trigger for him to, 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 to use a nuclear weapon. Um, but he, his rhetoric on, on nuclear weapons remains that uh, if the West pushes too hard, then the suggestion is and he, he doesn't spell it out, but it is, it's clearly the subtext is always that Russia could use nuclear weapons. Um, and in that, he clearly believes that Russia would be superior. The fact that he's done an interview straight off the back of doing the, the, the State of the Nation speech on Friday, what does that suggest about the way that Putin wants to communicate with his own people? It suggests to me that he is deep down worried. Um, of course, the whole thing, the whole, the whole war has gone not as he expected at all. He got very poor intelligence from his people uh, in Ukraine. He un under, uh, underestimated the ability of the Ukrainians and the will of the Ukrainians to fight back. Um, he made so many mistakes. And the more body bags that come back to Russia, and we estimates vary, but it, there could be as many as 200,000 Russian soldiers who've been killed and wounded. The majority they're wounded. But... but we're talking about vast numbers, far, far more than the Soviet Union suffered in the war uh, in Afghanistan in 10 years uh, back in the 1980s. Um, so it, it seems that he's really pushing this this idea to the Russian people. Look, you know, hang in there. You know, we're doing this for you. Um, 
he has to talk it up because when those who can see what's going on, those who've got access to uh, any uh, information coming from outside Russia, and of course that's very limited nowadays, if you don't know how to use a VPN, if you don't have contacts in the West that you can phone up, if you're seeing just Russian TV, then you're seeing that um, the West, the, the war isn't going too badly. If you can read between the lines on, as it were, on television, you can see that the tone of some of the reporting has changed. And sometimes the, the reporters and the commentators show themselves as clearly being worried. Um, for example, when the West announced that uh, it was going to send tanks to, uh, to Ukraine to help Ukraine, um, that was a, was a game changer. And you could see that on Russian TV, that the, 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 the hawks, the commentators, were clearly worried. So he... Putin has to try and talk it up and say, you know, we're still doing well and, and, and we've got to keep doing this because it's the West that's attacking us. And this, you know, the ultimate uh, threat for Russia is that Russia would be wiped off the face of the earth, which, of course, no one in the West has ever talked of doing. But that's what Putin has to try and present to his people. In the meantime, outside of Russia, there were quite extensive um, protests in Berlin this weekend. I think 10,000 people took to the streets in protest um, uh, against the West sending more weapons to Ukraine. What does that mean for uh, Vladimir Putin, other than something rather interesting that he can he can sort of peddle his rhetoric? A, a straw that he can grasp at, indeed, in, in the West. Um, Germany, of course, in this whole issue has been an interesting case, shall we say. There's a very big German business lobby which uh, has been pushing behind the scenes to lessen Germany's involvement uh, because they rather hope that one day things will get back to normal. And, and there are huge German businesses in, in Russia uh, for historical reasons. Um, they moved in immediately after the uh, the breakup of the Soviet Union. Uh, and then also, all to do with that, is you had a large number of people of, of German descent. Um, and this is crucial because it, these, some of these, their great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfathers hundreds of years ago left Germany to go to Russia. But if under German law you can show that you have a line which it doesn't matter how many generations it goes back, if you're German, then you can claim a German passport. And so a lot of these uh, people, often they lived on the River Volga, so they were known as the Volga Germans. And a lot of Volga Germans went to live, particularly in East Germany, because that, that was rather like the Soviet Union was, and in the eastern part. Um, and they s represent a significant lobby. And as you say, uh, a 10,000-strong demonstration uh, in Berlin uh, in, in support of the war at, at the time when across Europe and, and indeed other parts of the world, there were significant demonstrations outside Russian embassies against the war. Um, that's, that's why. It's because you've got this small minority, but nevertheless vocal minority in Germany, uh, who are, they're, they're a bit of both. They're part German because of their ancestry, but they are also not only Russian, but Soviet. And of course, they, what, what um, Vladimir Putin is saying very much chimes with them. Stephen DL, thank you as ever for joining us on The Globalist. Still to come on today's programme, how much soft power does the Pope wield in terms of the in times of conflict? We'll hear from the Vatican Secretary for Relations with States. He can try to keep certain dimensions of this terrible war to the fore. So he, for example, he can still pronounce the word peace, dialogue and diplomacy. Stay tuned on The Globalist. UBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, 
we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS, we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world. Now in politics, you leave the way you come in. In Turkey, this phrase is attributed to Suleyman Demirel, the man who was president in 1999 when a magnitude 7.6 earthquake struck just east of Istanbul. More than 17,000 people died, many of them killed by collapsing buildings whose constructors hadn't followed the regulations. While his successor was Recep Tayyip Erdogan, he now faces an identical crisis, albeit worse. 50,000 people are now estimated to have lost their lives, compounded with accusations that Erdogan's handling of the disaster is also falling short. Well, I'm joined now by Hannah Lucinda-Smith, his Monocle's correspondent in Istanbul. Good morning, Hannah. Good morning. Um, so the, the, the accusations that Erdogan is handling the disaster badly, what exactly are they? Yeah, well, I mean... Uh, I saw this for myself when I was reporting in the earthquake zone. It took the state disaster agency, AFAD, a really, really long time um, to get to the worst tip places. In some places, they never reached at all. And then following that up, uh, you know, it took a long time for aid efforts to arrive. There have been reports that some international teams who flew in were basically kept waiting in airports uh, for hours on end before being given permission to go out and get to the places where they were needed. Um, so right from the start and really growing as the time has gone on, um, there's been a huge amount of criticism of the response. Also, of course, as you mentioned, uh, of the... You construction of many of the buildings in these places. Um, you know, President Erdogan and his government are very, very close to the biggest constructors here in Turkey. Um, you know, the, the constructors who own you know, pro-government newspapers and newspaper and television channels, um, they handed huge state contracts. Um, so those kind of questions as well. But really, um, the kind of main anger at the moment is about the, the kind of delay in the response. There's also this, this re renewed and repeated accusation that as what happened in 1999, the buildings that were supposed to be safe were not, and that uh, much is being written about Turkish contractors' ability to bypass and cut corners. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, not just in 99. There are earthquakes all the time here in Turkey. Um, you know, probably one a year in which, you know, dozens of people will die. It doesn't make the headlines in the way that this one has, of course. But, um, you know, every time we see the same things over again, either buildings not being constructed properly, buildings being constructed in areas where they shouldn't be constructed. So in places where there's very high earthquake risk or, you know, dried up riverbeds, places like that where the ground isn't solid. Or in some cases, um, you your buildings haven't been uh, they've been constructed correctly but then there's been work done on those buildings subsequently so one thing that I reported on um, in the Izmir earthquake in 2020 and you know seeing signs of again here is that 
when you get these kind of six, eight story blocks, the ground floor units are often taken over by supermarkets, by banks. And what they do is they, they cut out the supporting columns um, in those spaces to create these kind of open plan spaces. Um, and it's really, really obvious when you're walking around earthquake zones because you can see how these buildings have just fallen forwards. It's almost like you know, the, the ground floor has kind of collapsed and everything's fallen to the side or fallen forwards. Um, so, you know, at every level, it's not just a case of, you know, one constructor or, you know, one rotten uh, municipality or one party it's at every level of turkish construction and politics um tell us a little bit more <laughs> about what can be done about this because th- there's not only accusations that you know the, the buildings literally fell short but also that there is widespread cor- corruption here in terms of the whole system yeah, absolutely. You know, and this is still carrying on. Just at the end of last week, as I was looking through the papers here in Turkey, a story that we've become so familiar with, another tender for a reconstruction project on a stadium basically given out without tender, just given to a preferred bidder. Now, this has happened again and again and again. And Turkey, particularly over the past 10 years, has gone on a really huge state construction spree. Um, a lot of it, most of it financed by... Um, public-private partnerships. So this is where um, private companies build assets and then lease them back to the government. It used to be popular in the UK as well, um, sort of fell out of favour because it was discovered that, you know, it's not particularly good value for money. Um, But hugely popular in Turkey, you know, under Erdogan, bridges, airports, huge new residential developments, um, you know, these have all gone into overdrive. Um, And, you know, it is again and again, the same constructors um, who are winning those contracts. You know, on top of that, Turkey has um, what's called the disaster law. It's a law that allows the government to um, seize areas which are considered really high risk in earthquakes and make sure um, that those areas uh, are built properly, that the buildings come up to standard, that they don't go above a certain high now, I talked to a researcher last week who's studied the patterns of these seizures in Istanbul, which is also lying on a fault line. And what he found is that it's not the areas that are at high risk that are being seized. It's the areas with high land value. So it's really clear how, you know, A, the system isn't working and B, you know, even the laws that are meant to ensure that buildings are built properly are just being used, um, you know, for the benefit of constructors. So tell us where there is a a way out of this i mean this is an impossible question to ask with a multi you know a huge answer but is there any sense that something good could come out of this or a new direction could be taken i mean i, I certainly hope so I, I have to say i'm not particularly um hopeful you know i was speaking to a friend here in istanbul um after the earthquake and you know, i asked her about what happened in 1999 i said you know were people this angry and she said yes but you know people forgot now Clearly, this is on a, a different scale, um, and clearly, you know, there was it, there are so many similarities politically with '99. You know, again, there was a kind of government that was, you know, coming under increasing pressure. You know, increasingly, you know, just failing to govern properly on a number of levels. Um, but I think what we have now is way in excess of that. Um, the other dif- the other difference, though, is that you know, President Erdogan has such control of the media. 
and the institutions of state and is completely willing to use that. So, you know, what's happened in the past few days is that Turkish journalists who've been raising these issues about, you know, the the slow response from the, the disaster agency, um, also about, you know, constructors, they are having court cases opened against them. And, you know, certain remaining opposition channels are having, uh, you know, temporary broadcasting la- uh, bans slapped on them by the regulators. So, you know, at the moment, it does appear that, um, you know, Erdogan is digging in and the, the state is digging in. Whether that can hold, I don't know. I mean, it was really interesting watching the major football games here in Istanbul over the weekend. Um, obviously, for a couple of weeks, everything was closed. It was national morning. But now that those football games have started up again, before both Fenerbahce and Besiktas games, the crowd were just chanting, the government has to resign. Um, now, you know, whether that can carry on, whether that can, you know, emerge into, you know, something politically tangible, I don't know. But certainly, you know, the anger is there. Annalisa Smith, as ever, thank you so much for joining us on Monocle 24. The time here in London is just nudging 7.32. A quick look now at the latest headlines. The U.S. has warned China against providing arms to support Russia's invasion of Ukraine. White House National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan says if Beijing provides military assistance, it will come with real costs to China. Western and NATO allies fear Beijing is considering providing lethal equipment, possibly including drones. The British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak meets European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen later today to finalise a Brexit deal for Northern Ireland. Deputy Prime Minister Dominic Raab says Britain and the EU are on the cusp of finalising negotiations. A deal has been expected for days, with recent talks focusing on its presentation and delivery. And around 60% of animal cafes in Japan deal with species restricted by international trade laws. That's according to a new study. The French and German NGOs who conducted the report says their popularity may threaten conservation efforts and heighten the risk of animal-borne diseases. The study found multiple species in cafes that are banned from being traded due to their endangered status. This is The Globalist. Stay tuned. Now, Pope Francis has renewed his appeal for peace in the war in Ukraine. He's called on leaders to end the senseless massacre. The papacy wields arguably more soft power than any other office holder on earth. But how much difference can the Catholic leader really make in times of conflict? Well, at the recent Munich Security Conference, Monocle's Andrew Muller sat down with Archbishop Paul Richard Gallagher, the Vatican's Secretary for Relations with States. Andrew began asking the Archbishop whether the Pope is in a unique position in international relations? Well, I think he is in a rather unique position because, of course, most of the positions adopted by countries and individuals representing countries are a reflection also of their national interest and of the alliances that they are part of. The Pope has the, has the luxury, you might say, of being very an independent. Sort of it's not as if he's not indicating Russia as the aggressor or that Ukraine is, has been attacked or anything like that. But it does mean that he can, he can be a little bit prophetic. He can try to keep certain dimensions of this terrible war to the fore. So he, for example, he can still pronounce the word peace, dialogue and diplomacy 
which are difficult words at the moment for many people to use in the context of the of this war in Ukraine because the sufferings of the Ukrainian people are so great and it's hasn't been easier for them to accept everything that the Pope has said either and he, he has, has his critics but it does mean that for the worldwide community which is obviously that's what he's concerned about above all there are different perceptions of this war if you're in Africa or in Asia so yes it is a unique position and he does have a unique responsibility. Do you operate any hard and fast rules about when it is appropriate or or helpful to deploy that unique diplomatic weight that the Pope carries? I know he's just been to the Democratic Republic of Congo and South Sudan, for example, and made the first papal visit to Iraq a while back. Is there any kind of template of rules you apply about should we do this or should we not do this? We tend to make it up as we go along. <laughs> Part of this job is looking at the opportunities and the situations that present themselves and trying to discern. This is part of our responsibility is to try to discern when is it appropriate for the Pope to say something? When does the Pope maybe himself want, want, want to say something? And then to find, form, to find the right form of words, the right expression. But it's really being in touch. It's having the pulse of where the international community is, where the world is at, or where particular crises are at today, and seeing what we can do. And sometimes that is very limited, like the, the Pope normally only makes public statements on such issues like the war, either on Wednesdays at the general audience, or on Sundays at the blessing of the Angelus at midday. So you, you've always got that in the back of your mind, so you can say, well, should he say something about this issue next Sunday? So should we then prepare a text and propose a text and let him see it and let him correct it and let him rip it up. (laughs) So, yes, it's a matter of uh, grasping the opportunities as they present themselves and being sufficiently well-informed as to understand what is really going on. It's One of the problems one has sometimes is that you've got rapidly evolving situations and you can prepare something today, which by in 12 hours' time may be a bit out of date. So you have to be able to adjust it pretty quickly. You visited Kiev. Was, was that at your initiative or a, a suggestion of, of the Pope? That was a feeling that somebody should go. We'd had already a number of humanitarian missions. The Pope sent two cardinals uh, to different parts of Ukraine. One went to the Polish border area. Another one went to, uh, to the Slovak uh, part. And that had been exclusively the humanitarian missions. And it, I, f- I felt, and others, that it was appropriate that we, made, we made also made a political gesture. And so it seemed a- a- appropriate that uh, at that time that I should go. It was easier that, that I, I went. And, uh, but it was obviously something that we proposed uh, to both to the Cardinal Secretary of State and, and to the Holy Father, and they, they had no problem. So we, we went with it. And, on this pilgrimage to Kiev, <laughs> which is quite an undertaking as a, as a journey. Yeah, I, I would think. But what did you learn from that specific trip that would inform how the Vatican has approached it since then or how the Vatican will approach this crisis? Well, I, I think, it, A, it uh, tells you that there is, there is no alternative to first-hand knowledge. And I certainly felt that when I went there, both the, the journey, obviously you, you meet people along the journey, you ask questions and, you, and they, they answer you. And then when we, we went to Kiev in particular, we went to Bucha, we went to another 
couple of places on the outskirts of the of the city where there had been attacks and uh, de mammoth destruction. Uh, that changes your perception, you see. It's not just simply uh, something which appears in the media. And that does uh, change your perception and therefore obviously the way you, re you reply to things. I think that that's indispensable. It's one of the reasons why I, we still believe in diplomacy, still believe in sending diplomatic representatives to countries in difficulties, think that they can not just not just that they can report back, but they can bring a sense of that reality. And, and is there any dialogue at all, I guess, within the religious sphere between the Vatican and, and the Russian Orthodox Church? Or do you take the view that as they have arrayed themselves fairly squarely behind the Russian regime, that's, that's not useful to you? No, no. The relations with Orthodoxy in general have been a priority of this pontificate. We, uh, without endorsing positions that the Russian Orthodox Church and its leadership have adopted, we still believe that it is important to, to carry on talking, both in terms of ecumenical dialogue and in terms of talking about, about the, the issues of the day. Obviously, that's much more difficult now, and there have been moments of tension, both between the Pope and Patriarch Kirill, over th things that were, were said. And it's not easy, but we try to exploit the, those channels that, that, that are still available to us. And, and just finally, I know it, it, it has been spoken about and speculated about, and I don't expect you to announce it right now, but just as a theoretical prospect of the Pope visiting Ukraine or visiting any country at war, how difficult a conversation is that within the Vatican? What kind of factors are taken into consideration? Well, obviously, the first thing it, that is uh, important is this assessing the will and determination of the Pope to visit <laughs> I can assure you we ha that uh, when he was going, a number of years ago now, to the Central African Republic, there was a consensus amongst some of us, his advisers, that this was a very dangerous prospect and undertaking. And uh, we, we sat around a table and, uh, well, the Pope listened to us and he thanked us and he said, I'm going. <laughs> and, uh, and he has actually said on one occasion, I'm not... Not sure he said, well, I'm going. If, if you don't want to come, you don't have to come. His basic spiritual horizon is completely Ignatian, Jesuit. So he, he looks at the things, he prays about it, he makes a discernment, and he makes up his mind. And God help anybody who wants, tries to change his mind after that. And that was Archbishop Paul Richard Gallagher there talking to Monocle's Andrew Muller at the Munich Security Conference. You with The Globalist on Monocle 24. <laughs> Let's continue today's programme. Joining me in the studio, I'm delighted to say, is Simon Brook, journalist and communications consultant and baby sham drinker. We're going to find <laughs> out in a minute. Yeah. Oh, that all will be revealed, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, hello, Simon. How are you? Good morning. Very well. How are you? Very Husky well, thank you. Things. Yes, it's, it's fine. Um, let's start off. What have you spotted in the papers? Yeah, the Sydney Morning Herald um, is one of a number of newspapers and news websites this morning reporting that this lab leak uh, is, the, uh, is the most likely cause of the pandemic, uh, at least according to the US Energy Department. Um, and the Herald says that, uh, that it has to be said that US spy agencies remain divided over the origins of the virus. Um, but it, the paper points out that this does move from the department's earlier position that it was undecided about the uh, how the virus has emerged. 
Uh, and according to the Herald, the department's insights come from the network of national laboratories that it oversees, rather than from traditional forms of intelligence like spy networks or communications intercepts. So, uh, so just briefly, are they suggesting that this is more, dare I use the phrase, more cock-up than conspiracy? Well, it does seem to, exactly, yes. So, so certainly, I mean, that obviously would be absolute dynamite, wouldn't it? Some suggestion that somebody had deliberately introduced uh, this virus into the public uh, into the public domain but no this is this is a suggestion that um that it is uh, come from a, the lab but i think the fact that it's come from the lab rather than wet markets or any of the other suggested origins i think is really important and i think also particularly important um at the moment obviously the sydney morning morning herald is going big on this story because anything that china does is particularly significant for Australia. But I think the other thing is the timing generally of this story uh, emerging is particularly significant as well because of the um, increased tensions between China and the West we've seen over the last few years. And also, most recently, of course, over suggestions that the Chinese government might provide military support to Russia. So even if it does look like, as you say, more cock up the conspiracy, it is still potentially quite uh, difficult. Isn't it strange that we are nearly three years into the beginning of the pan- into the pandemic really taking its grip on the world had this have had emerged earlier the reaction arguably would be far more different because it's astonishing what time does to place you know to, to place a bit of distance between a story this would have been huge news a little while ago. Yeah, I think it was interesting. You're right. It certainly there was this story did uh, emerge and was widely debated um, just during the time of the pandemic and just afterwards. But I think really why the story sort of has re-emerged is partly because China has refused to get involved in any kind of investigation. And so not, you know, even people who wouldn't regard themselves as conspiracy theorists have felt slightly suspicious about that because there's so much information there that China will not not allowed to be released. And you'll remember, of course, even when the virus first uh, exploded, first uh, emerged, um, the, the Chinese government tried to close it down and uh, took action against the man who who first um, warned people that this virus could be particularly serious. Let's move on to a story in the Financial Times. Um, it, it talks about um, Ukraine fighting for a way of life as much as for its territory. It's a good point, isn't it, that everything has now become to who owns what, who controls what. But in actual fact, there is an entire society which was, has been in many cases, blown to bits since Russia's invasion. Exactly, yes. So the FT foreign affairs uh, columnist Martin Sandow uh, looks back at Joe Biden's uh, speech last week in Poland, um, describes his language, Biden's language, as Manichaean and uh, and also... Uh, points out that that you know there's a there's a sort of comparison here with Ronald Reagan's very strong rhetoric back in the 1980s you know the empire of evil and things and uh, uh, according to to Sandow president joe biden's speech in warsaw was thickly coated in the kind of idealistic rhetoric that many western europeans discreetly roll their eyes at um, but according to sandow this dramatic uh, as i say manichaean language matters uh, as he says as reagan's rhetoric did because it speaks to the experience of those directly confronting autocracy, whether Poland during the Cold War or Ukraine today. And I think this is really important. As you say, we do tend to view this as a war about territory, you know, who's got crime
Crimea, who's got the east of Ukraine, who might get a few hundred metres back in this appalling trench warfare that we're now seeing develop. But it's a battle about ideas. And I would say, uh, and, and, and Sandow paints a very clear picture of this, in a way, uh, a battle between good and evil. This, this is what effectively what Manneke and, uh, and approach yeah, is. Exactly. It's, it's, it's yeah. two sides which are diame- diametrically no, no, opposed no to each other. subtle, fuzzy uh, middle ground. Now, this isn't the first time in the last few days, actually, that this, this criticism has been levered at Biden, which is he is seeing things along a, a, a narrative which no longer actually applies to today, insofar as we are so global that it is impossible to take totally clean opposed sides. Yeah, I think the point is we are. I think we are global, and I think um, you know one of the things Biden has always made very clear about his presidency is, and and it was the same when he was vice president. He does take a global view. You know, he he has met uh, world leaders. He's travelled around the world, and so this is particularly important to him. And and I was listening to an interview uh, with with commentators just over the weekend saying that when his political biography is written, uh, you know that that he will hope that there are significant chapters on his influence on global affairs. And I think it's interesting because Ronald Reagan, a Republican president, very much at the time considered on the right wing, Biden, a Democratic president. But when it comes to this global view of the world, uh, and as I say, you know, good versus evil in many ways, it's interesting that actually we thought with the end of history, this had gone, but it's back again. Um, Let's have a major handbrake turn in terms of tone on the newspaper review. It's always a delight to do something like this. Uh, from going from you know, major geopolitical conflict uh, to fizzy drinks, and indeed fizzy drinks from the 1970s, um, which I'd, I'd forgotten about baby sham. Many Arguably, I was actually at that stage possibly a little too young to be drinking it. Um, but, but just explain to us why uh, the Telegraph of all newspapers has decided that it wants to tell us all to go and have a baby sham. Quite a stylish drink, one would say. Well, it was at one point. This is a sweet, <laughs> sparkling uh, perry, which is made out of pears, I think, isn't it? Yes, of course it is. Yes. It's basically uh, pears. Exactly. Pear uh, exactly. According to the Daily Telegraph, baby sham is making a comeback as its owners claim many drinkers would choose it over champagne. And I have to say, this really um, jumped out at me at this story because one of the first girls I ever snogged when I was into girls uh, was a huge <laughs> baby sham fan. And what she was well known for was the fact that she was such a fan that she could open a bottle or, or t- prize the cap off a bottle of baby sham with her teeth. Um, but that problem, I'm what sure baby happened, sham is... Simon? What went wrong? What could possibly was... go wrong with a woman who can take a bottle of baby sham's top off with her teeth? What else could If only we continued our relationship, <laughs> I'd know. But anyway, as you say, baby sham is back very much uh, uh, you know coming back onto the shelves and into bars and stuff and I didn't realise this but apparently not only was it invented 70 years ago but it was the first alcoholic drink to be advertised on television here in the UK um, Simon what's going to happen to you now that we get baby sham back on the shelves I'm, I'm off for a baby sham now why not I'm going to start from now and I'm going to start every day uh, with a baby sham we shall all learn to remove the bottle top with our teeth Simon Brooke thank you so much you. for joining us on The Globalist UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. here in London. Let's get the latest art and culture headlines with the journalist Amma Rose Abrams. Good morning. Morning, Amma. How are you? I'm all right, yes. 
Good, How are you? Good to have you with us in the studio. Right, round up the new the arts news for us with you. Where do you want to start? I'd love to start with um, Kagami, which translates as Mirror, and that's Ryuichi Sakamoto's um, latest project, which he's announced and will premiere this summer at The Shed in New York and um, at the Manchester International Festival. And it's a mixed reality concert, which will um, involve a virtual hymn rather than a real hymn, I think. Right, okay. Maybe a real performance. Have you just spotted my eyebrows going? going, Where are we going with this, Anna Rose? (laughs) So I think it's it's going to be... They've used this very groundbreaking technology to do it, so I think it will be like a premiere of the technology as much as it is a premiere of the composition. And so I think it will... My understanding of it is it will be... There'll be, be an option to kind of watch, to kind of take the music in as it is, or to kind of have a virtual... A virtual Sakamoto um, along with it. So what, what if we go to this, what is clearly going to be sort of a, a, an immersive experience, yes. what will it look, sound and feel like? I think that they are being quite vague about that. They haven't really kind of told us exactly what it will look and feel like but he has released a kind of poem with it that says uh, there is in reality a virtual me, the virtual me will not age and will continue to play the piano for years. Fine. Lovely. Okay. Uh, And where can we see this? The Shed in New York and at Manchester International Festival as well. Yes. Okay. Lovely. We should look forward to this. Um, Big news if you are a fan of David Bowie. The Victorian Albert Museum here in London has acquired his... His archive. Now, what's in this archive? I mean, arguably, what's not in it? It's 80,000 items. So there's a lot in there. So I think from ephemera, ticket stubs and things like that. It will, and also kind of um, some of his kind of landmark costumes, um, the Yamamoto amazing suit with the huge trousers that we saw Sam Smith kind of recreate earlier this year, and um, and kind of and I think just many 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 things like I think um, the. It's it's just a huge collection donated by I think his family, and it will be available to everybody because it's going to be kind of free to the public installed at a new. Well, it's not new; it's there. You can go and you'll see it if you go down to Stratford. But it's the David Bowie Centre for the Study of Performing Arts at V&A East. I mean, when you are, I mean, as a, as an art expert, when someone says, we've got 80,000 items, how do you go about curating it? I've got no idea. <laughs> I re- that's what I was thinking about when I was looking at it, and I was quite flummoxed. I was like, and also just kind of the resource from so many different angles, like kind of social history, the art side, the wonderful design, you know, his own collections of things. Really, I think the remit could be so, so, so wide, but the fact that they're calling it a centre for performing arts makes me think it, the focus will be on the music side and on the performance and staging side. It is astonishing. There's a There's a large push at the moment because am I right in thinking that the Museum London Docklands is trying to find an exhibition on Jewish fashion designers yes and a lot of that was actually what David Bowie was wearing at the time yes um, the, there's a there's a dress that David Bowie was wearing on the cover of the the man who sold the world in 1970 and there is a desperate search on to find it isn't it it's that astonishing thought that in the back of somebody's wardrobe 
could be this most astonishing, wonderful piece of clothing that could transform everything. Exactly. But that's what's just so wonderful about cultural history and about these objects is the stories that they tell and where they end up. And almost if these things become lost and then are found again, it just adds to their kind of wonderment, you know. And it's good to see the the likes of David Bowie actually becoming a a, a permanent fixture on the London art scene. Yeah, absolutely. Because, I mean, he's an icon. We have these people in our midst for a short time. Then people just move, you know, move on to the next place. But his legacy is huge and it's reverberated since his passing. And so I think it's just wonderful that people will have this access and it's free. Uh, let's move on to uh, the Turbine Hall in uh, Tate Modern on the yes. South Bank here in London. Um, it is that wonderful space huge 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 space almost too big to comprehend and to fathom when you are in London actually you just don't think that spaces like that exist it's a big place (laughs) and it has regular rotating exhibitions in it huge installations the next one is interesting and quite relevant to you Yes. Well, it's. I, mean, I think every great artist wants a crack at the turbine hall, unless they're working <laughs> on a very small scale, which could work. But um, the latest commission, which will be kind of going on view in October this year, is El Anatsui, who is a Ghanaian artist. I mean, he's very established. He's in his 80s. But his work, you may recognise, because essentially what he does is he takes bottle tops, like rubbish essentially, beats them, and then attaches them together almost like chain mail and they look like precious metals they look like gold so it plays with you slightly and um and they, he makes these huge sheets of this kind of chain mail and then arranges them in different ways and different colors so it could be really spectacular and i visited his um studio last october and there was some quite large art. We were, photos were banned, <laughs> <laughs> unfortunately, because now it was a huge thing. We were like, what are you working on? It's a good job that we're on the radio, which arguably someone once said paints the best pictures. Is there anything that you can tell us that you saw, perhaps, without taking a photograph? Uh Really, it looked like there were, it was the usual abstract forms and there were sections that were made up of bottle tops from different eras. So it's almost like they told a visual story and a geopolitical story as well. Okay, finally, um, one show in London that you recommend us all to go to? There's tons. I recommend everyone gets down to see Alice Neal at the Barbican because she is, you know... She just was a legend and a renegade and she led this really radical life and she painted it and you can feel it and these wonderful portraits just are utterly unique and communicate yes, a really interesting life that she lived. They're quite challenging. I was having this conversation before about how they kind of ask something of you. It's almost like there's a, an element of a real person sitting in front of you where you, you know, you can't be passive. But Okay, Emma Rose, thank you so much. That's one at the Barbican, that's Alice Neal. Uh, thank you so much, Emma Rose, for joining me in the studio. You were The Globalist. Let's head to Milan, where it is Fashion Week, and Natalie Theodosi is Monocle's fashion editor. She joins me from the Italian city. Very good morning to you, Natalie. Good morning, Emma. How's Milan looking this morning? 
Milan is great. It's sunny and uh, there, it was a busy weekend with a, with a lot of great shows and a lot of to take in. It was incredibly busy. They sort of jam-packed a, a sort of all, most of, dare I say, the big Italian names. Where do you want to start? I would start right at the beginning of the week at Prada, which uh, always sort of opens uh, Milan Fashion Week. It's it's the first show that everyone gets really excited about. And this season, I thought it was really interesting that the show was a little bit more toned down. The collection was muted, a lot of grey colours, a lot of easy pieces like cardigans, a cotton skirt and backstage Mutual Prada spoke about the need to move towards utility, towards classic garments, and that ostentatious glamour doesn't really have much of a place in this moment in time. She acknowledged that her show is happening one year um, during the one-year anniversary of, of Russia's invasion to Ukraine, and um, that's that's how she wanted to, to approach the show, in, in a very subtle way, acknowledge it. And um, also some of the silhouettes referenced um, the uniforms of, re- of nurses and frontline workers. Indeed. The, the interesting thing is, though, is that for the gravity of the subject, what she turned out was an incredibly wearable collection. Exactly. It's wearable. It is still very luxurious, but I think it is more respectful to to what's going on. And and also it it shows that this is where we're moving towards things that are a little bit more wearable and and that you can buy and keep in your wardrobe for years, even even and you can show them on the catwalk and look beautiful. You don't need to go overboard and show things that are disposable and only relevant for a season or speaking to a specific trend. What's funny is that you hear a lot of criticism of that. There was a word banded around in the last few days called bland standing, which is when, as you say, a designer or a house deliberately tones things down. And some people were seeing this as a negative thing. Arguably, it is, it is refreshing, isn't it? I think so. I think, of course, there is a portion of the industry that thrives on trends, on on selling more and getting people to to keep renewing their wardrobes. So, of of course, there's going to be a little bit of a pushback. But at the same time, I think this is the way to go. We we speak about sustainability and sustainability can be, uh, you know, if, if if the clothes are recycled or what fabric you use. But the biggest part of it is really picking things that are more timeless and and they don't as Prada proved it it's not bland it can still be quite interesting and it was also Mathieu Blasi at Bottega Veneta um, had a similar approach and his show was one of the standouts again on on Saturday evening Um, and uh, his whole idea was crafting motion and really toning things down but working with the artisans of the house to really excel in in craft and quality of the leather pieces that they're showing. have to mention Gucci because it's in, there's a bit of an interregnum, interregnum at the moment because Alessandro Michele was uh, removed a couple of months ago and we're still waiting for Sabato de Sano to, 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 to come from Valentino. And so you had this sort of group effort by the team left by Alessandro Michele to try and pull together a collection. Did it work? To be honest with you, there was a lot of divided opinion. I wouldn't say it quite worked. There was a little bit of, re- of a return to that classic 
way of dressing. They brought the classic Gucci local belts. There was a lot of trench coats and, and oversized suits. So that was one side. And then on the other side, the team heavily referenced the 1990s and um, the designs by former creative director Tom Ford. So you went back to really low waist. Models were really skinny again, crystallized accessories, big colorful fur coats. So that angered a lot of people because we were going back to a time where models were dangerously thin. Those low waists are only for a specific body type. Uh, so you, you had a lot of divided opinions. Some people were excited to relive it and maybe wear it, but others really didn't approve. And there was this disjointed approach as well between the classic pieces and then that 1990s revival. Natalie Theodosi on the line from Milan and Natalie will be on her way to Paris in the next couple of days of Fashion Week begins there. Natalie, thank you so much and happy travels. That's all we have time for today's programme. Many thanks to all my guests and to the producers, Laura Kramer, Emma Sell and Sophie Monacombs. Our researchers are Lillian Fawcett and Andre Nikolai Parminchin and our studio manager was Adam Heaton. After the headlines, more music on the way. The briefing is live at midday in London and The Globalist is back at the same time tomorrow. Join me if you can. But for now, from me, Emma Nelson, goodbye and thank you very much for listening and have a good week.